Hello, welcome to another podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Steve, and welcome to the Science Shed. Yeah, it's good to be back. And um, Steve and I, we're, we're doing this kind of like as disembodied people in two different places. That's right, yeah, we're doing it via, via the phone, which seems a bit weird. Um, but it's going all right. What do you think, Nick? Oh, it's not too bad. It's a bit of a delay on the line, but never okay. mind. Yeah, we're going to have to um, do a short, like, apology for the quality of the, the podcast that you're going to listen to today, aren't we, Steve? Yeah, that's right. We recorded uh, this week's podcast in the Royal Society um, in London, and it was before Nick and I um, knew what we were doing, really. So it's just incredible ineptitude in terms of the recording quality. But the, I think you'll agree that the quality of the of the of the conversation is exemplary. What do you think, Nick? I don't know about that, Steve, <laughs> but I do blame you for any repercussions because it was your idea to book a room in the cathedral that is the Royal Society, which and anyone who's been to a cathedral of science will know that they're very echoey places. It's not really so a cathedral, we, we should say that. Was... It's, it's just, it, maybe it's a kind of meta comment that we managed to make it really echoey in what we consider a cathedral of science. That's good, I like that. Oh, wow, so we were kind of like, it was perfect. We're meta. We did it on purpose. Yeah, well, anyway, it's really echoey and we're sorry. Um, but yeah, this this week the podcast we're talking um, about um, uh, speaking a little bit about Harry Croto, who sadly passed away a few weeks ago, um, and Nick's doing um, uh, his favourite thing, which is mixing hard rock and science. Isn't that right, Nick? Yeah, yeah, it's one of my, my the things that's closest to my heart. Um, hard rock and how that crosses over into the land of science. Well, good. Well, should we get on with it? Yeah, let's go, Steve. All right, here we go. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the new uh, Steve and Nick podcast. Yeah. How are you today, Steve? I'm very well, thanks, Nick. How are you? Oh, I'm not so bad. I had a nice uh, journey up here to the Royal Society. That's right. We're so talking from inside the Royal Society, which is a bit different from, from talking in your um, uh, living room. It's a little bit more grand. It's episode two of the podcast. I thought we'd push the boat out. You really have, Steve. You've invited me up here, and by your kind invitation, I have been inducted into this Hall of Legends. Hall of Legends. The, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of scientists. I haven't seen Mick Jagger today, though. You no, know? he's not a scientist. No. Oh, no, he's not, is he? I forgot. But he's a rock and roller. He is. Anyway, it's... Uh, like it's, Feynman. He was a bit of a rock and roller. He was. He played the drums, didn't he? But yeah. anyway, it's... It's nice to be here. Um, it's quite posh when you come in because it's on Pall Mall and, um, you know, it's a big grand sort of old building, Edwardian or something, I don't really know. Beautiful, big marbled hall and then yeah. you come upstairs and then it's just a bunch of normal people in an open plan office. That's right, yeah. <laughs> the illusion. Yeah, they're all totally it's, normal. It's all behind the curtain. They just do, they're just minding their own business, getting on with work, sitting around computers like any other office. Having cups of tea. I can't believe that it's the same place that Isaac Newton had an apple land on his head. That's None of that's true. That happened here, though, didn't it? No, it didn't. I'm sure it did. And didn't he no, have didn't. a punch-up with Robert Hooke downstairs? The, no, it wasn't in this building, I told they you. They had some kind of cat fight. I'm sure they had a cat fight, but like, it's, it's, it was, didn't happen in this building. This is, they've only been here since the, after the Second World War. 
but it's a beautiful building. Oh, you've just destroyed all my legends. Sorry. I thought I was walking. I think this is actually the third building that the Royal Society's been in. Do you know where they were before? No, we really should look this up. We should, we should, we should, we should practice before we show off. Yeah. Anyway, we're in the Royal Society, which is fantastic. I feel really excited about yeah. it. It's, it's cool. Downstairs, they had a massive mace. They do, yeah. You occasionally come here. Do you get the mace out? We just, there's very little. Yeah, we use the mace for any occasion. You do like reverent stuff with it? Yeah, we kind of pretend to knight people, that kind of thing. Is it like in the Masons? <laughs> it, does, it does feel a little bit like we're in the Masons, doesn't it? Well, not up here because everyone's like in an office. I just bumped into a colleague that I haven't seen for 13 years. I used to work with in an editorial company. Yeah, that's... And he's, I know for a fact, he's a normal bloke. Okay. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing dodgy about it. So maybe they don't let the fellows up into this bit. I think the fellows are in a special room somewhere. Right. Probably like beating each other with <laughs> strange sticks. <laughs> yeah, which have a Latin is this where Is this where Opus Dei from as well? No, like we're not in that older building. At all oh too. my God, I swear that there's... there's but they, they, yeah, it has got, they do have... So for anyone that doesn't know, the Royal Society was the, uh, the first place to publish a scientific journal uh, called the... Uh, the Royal Transactions of the, the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which was the first ever scientific journal. They have is every it, copy. Is it called that because they sort of ponder or they're sort of quite philosophical about things? Like, oh, oh, so well, back, I um, but it's so great, you can go back. We'll, we'll go. Uh, I didn't know about when the sun was coming. <laughs> I feel very phil- philosophical about it. Well, it's great. What you can do is you can go there and you can look back between. 350 years and you can just pull uh, an article out and, and read it and um, I did that the other day and I opened it up and the article is entitled um, Optimal Hunting Strategies for Partridge well that you know that's a good argument for not pulling out is it fun? well it's quite good fun I suppose it's better than the boring articles that we probably normally read exactly it? You know, Steve, that I work a bit in the area of nanotechnology. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I do work in nanotechnology. It's a very exciting field. So nanotechnology is small stuff, isn't it? How small is small, Steve? Um, as small as a small thing. Um, what, what, why don't we define what nanotechnology is rather in a slightly more scientific way than small stuff? Do we have to, Steve? Yeah, I think so. You always bring me back down to earth. With I'm like good, I'm good cop and you're bad cop. That's how this is going to work. Well, maybe the other way around. Maybe you're okay. bad cop, I'm good cop. <laughs> okay, well, nanotechnology, for anyone who doesn't know, is essentially the study of uh, things that occur on the nanoscale. So a nanometer is one billionth of a metre. Is it a nanometer or a nanometer? I would call it a nanometer. Why? Well, is it a kilometre or a kilometre? I don't know. Kilometre, some people say. Some people say kilometre. No one says kilometre. <laughs> kilometre. They do. They say They say <laughs> kilometre. <laughs> I have never heard someone say kilometre. They say kilometre. And kilometer. Yeah, that's true. So they do kilometer. That's what I was thinking of. Right. I got confused with the whole kilometer. And then one. Anyway, yeah. So you say it's small stuff. It's small stuff. I think there's anything that generally is considered. It's on like kind of three orders of magnitude around that. So then from one one uh, nanometer up to one micron. I think typically is how people choose to define nanotechnology. But I, that's how I define it. So how would you define it? I, I, well, I've heard it. So um, yeah. So a millimetre is small, people understand a millimetre is small. Mm-hmm. So a micrometre is a thousandth of a millimetre. Mm-hmm. So and the nanoscale, I would say, starts at about a hundredth of a, of a, a micrometre. 
So, do so some just, to give everyone, just to give everyone a, uh, a feel of it, so, so a, a hair is about 50 microns, something like that. The yeah, it's about, is about 100 microns. It's about a thousandth the width of a hair. It's stuff below that, I think, people genuinely class as being on the nanoscale. Anyway, so we, in my lab, we look at a bit, uh, we look at um, nanotechnology a bit for drug delivery. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's quite interesting. So we're doing a bunch of stuff to do with trying to deliver stuff to, to injury sites when they um, they break a bone or something. But I came across this paper, Steve. And I'm going to tell you about. Should we call this? Should, should we call this this segment? I came across this paper, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> We could do, we yeah, could do. do. Okay, so you came across this paper, Nick. Yeah, so the paper, right, and I was alerted to it, I've got, a, I've got a friend in Australia. He's not a scientist, he's just a punter. He's just got a job, he lives in Sydney, has mm-hmm. a good life, has a suntan. It's a bit derogatory to everyone that isn't a scientist, though. Well, I, what, I can't remember what I said now. Punter. Blacked it out. Well, his punter's fine, I don't know okay. why right, He just hangs around in Sydney, he's got a normal sort of job. Uh-huh. He wears shorts probably too much, like most Australians generally do. That's a defining characteristic of Australia. But anyway, this, he, he found this paper, and I think it was reported in the um, like the news outlets in Australia. It's, I don't think it's been reported much in the UK, but um, it's by an Australian group. That may be part of the reason. Okay. okay. I just want to so read out. I'm just going to read out the title of the paper to start with. Okay. So it's called. Cool. So, so this is a research article. This is a research article. It's been published in a peer-reviewed journal. It's a good journal as well. Okay, let's not. Okay, well, I don't want to go into the details of what makes a good journal. It's called ACS. That's the American Chemical Society Applied Materials and Interfaces, and the paper is called "Thunderstruck." In inverted commas, colon, plasma polymer coated porous silicon microparticles as a controlled drug delivery system. All right. So what they're doing is they're making tiny particles and they're using them to deliver drugs, so they kind of release drugs quite slowly. Mm. Kind of like a pill, but in the bloodstream rather than in, in the guts, right? Anyway, the paper seems pretty normal. There's lots of kind of quite um, boring stuff that you'd normally find in a paper, you know. It says things like silicon microparticles were placed into an Eppendorf tube to which a known volume, 50 uh, microliters to 200 microliters of the model drug solution, approximately 5 mg per mil CPT in dried distilled DMF was added. And it goes on like that quite a long time. So for those who don't know, that's very common. That's a very this is a sort of science part. This is the sort of rubbish I write on a Indeed. daily basis. Complete it's complete science, science, science guff. Tedious before. Anyway, it carries on in this vein for some time. And then it says, there's a sentence here. After the pressure was adjusted to 200 millitor, the acoustic drive signal was turned on by playing ACDC's thong song Thunderstruck on a loop. <laughs> the volume was slowly increased until the particles were visibly bouncing. Wow. Okay. So, so, so did, did they do control experiments with other ACDC genes? Or maybe other... This is my main criticism. If I were reviewing the paper, yeah. You'd be like, why did you not do Back in Black? And, they do, and it goes on like that. This basically like, <laughs> this is like protein. It's a, they, they, they were introduced into a plasma reactor on a loudspeaker, and after applying vacuum, an acoustic drive signal was turned on by playing ACDC song Thunderstruck. So it goes on like this a lot. Thunderstruck. So no other ACDC tune. It's in the acknowledgement. The authors would like to acknowledge the use of the song Thunderstruck by ACDC. Wow. So generally, what they were trying to do was coat these these kind of like micro particles 
in uh, another type of molecule. And they thought that... The <laughs> it says... What does it say? It, these are obtained... So, for this, music can be used. A song that produces chaotic motion and excellent Teflon-like overcoatings on the particles was thunderstruck by ACDC. So, but that does suggest that they've tried other songs. I, 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 I read the, the subtext of that is, you know, is that other songs don't work as well. If you tried, you know, the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, then it's bullshit. It doesn't work at all. Well, possibly. I mean, they needed something... Cha apparently, they needed something chaotic. Well, but what about the Who? Who? The Who. Who? The Who. Let's not go down that avenue. Sorry, Steve. Yeah, um, so I thought that was quite an interesting paper. Wow. Okay, well, I've never seen that before in a science paper. It's good to see that kind of mixture of science and art. Kind you of know what's... I think it's a bit silly. You think it's a bit silly? It's a bit silly. Are you jealous that you have never worked to ACD? That, to me, actually, that sounds like a, a, a bet in the pub. And I bet you I can work into a serious scientific peer-reviewed article the use of <laughs> ACDC's Thunderstruck. <laughs> I totally agree. I mean, I looked at the dude afterwards. The main author is a guy called Nico um, Volkler, I think his name's pronounced. And he's... Um, you know, he's a pretty well-respected scientist. He's got, like, more than 200 publications. Wow. He does, like, loads of different stuff, spin-out things, you know, stuff to do with tech transfer, trying to make businesses. And um, I don't know, he's just decided to publish this paper that has ACDC in it. That's incredible. So now we've got to, we've got to make ourselves a similar bet. You know, science is... Uh it's, it's fraught with these kind of uh, these bets through history, you know. Uh, Come on in, Steve. Well, I think you know, as a as a, as a huge fan of the Canadian uh, rock band Rushnik, that's yourself, not me. I think we'd have to try and work in a Rush tune, or at least an acronym based on a Rush on a Rush, <laughs> on a Rush album. Um, Come on, we're actually so Nick and I are writing a paper at the moment together, <laughs> and maybe we should get like twenty one twelve in somewhere. Just just. Well, then we, should, then we should we should acknowledge twenty or twelve. You could do because it could be like I don't exactly. know some spurious catalogue number for something. That, exactly, but no one would know it. Exactly, we so you'd find it. out in the in the in the catalogue. No, no, but we'll, we'll leave a little clue, a little breadcrumb. What we'll do is we'll acknowledge that the the, the, the uh, corresponding author of this part of this article just in the in acknowledgement and see if they notice. Maybe something a little bit more, a little bit. Acknowledge hard. who? What this guy? Why would we acknowledge him? Because he thought up the idea. Like putting classic rock tunes in, in we acknowledge research uh, articles. There are some other, I mean, there are other examples of this type of paper, aren't there? But usually they are kind of jokes. We were talking last week about um, the whole people using like a unit with a stupid name. Yeah, the, uh, the pirate ninja, famously yeah. from uh, the, um, the uh, Marshall. Which I think is stupid. Did my head in? You didn't like the no, we talked about it last week. I but I mean, this 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 is kind of stupid as well. But I kind of had more respect for it just because it's just totally nuts, and it's it probably is in a scientific publication. I can't believe that um, you know they did it really. Well, well I'm going to have to uh, try and outdo you next week then. Uh, on uh, I found this. Well, you can try, paper. Steve. No, right, it's going to be. You set the bar high. Struggle to meet. It's really high. <laughs> Okay, that's great. I've actually been in a lab this week. We've done some experiments. There's a guy who I work with now, and 
he makes bubbles. Bubbles. Small bubbles. Mm. Tiny little nano bubbles. Mm. Micro bubbles and nano bubbles. And like these bubbles, they've been used for quite a long time for like trying to image in tissues, ultrasound imaging. Mm-hmm. So the idea is they're a contrast agent. Mm-hmm. So basically, and it sounds sort of dangerous because I know about diving and bubbles in the blood are bad, right? Mm-hmm. Do you get the bends? Do you get bubbles you can, in the yeah. blood? Right, well, this happens normally. You inject bubbles into someone's bloodstream, right? And then when they go in, a, in, in, a, in an organ, you can see them. So it allows you to get some better contrast. And what's the origin of the contrast? I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not no, a bubble expert. expert. Okay. I'm just a biologist. Okay. Just a, he, he tells me that that's what happens, and I okay. just believe him. <laughs> that's what's happening. Isn't that a sad <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Why so, believing others? <laughs> no, but I've seen, I've, you know, I've seen scientific publications and things. So it must you be have. true. Right, okay. Absolutely must be I'm true. Not, I'm not saying anyway, true. I was asking how it worked. Anyway, so we were in lab. I don't, and I'm not going to explain why we're doing it yet. But basically, um, I was in the lab with him, and it's weird being back in because I don't go in the lab very much these days. You probably still go in the lab. I rarely, rarely go. Do in you the really? Lab. Very, very rarely. That's sad. It is sad. So you're a, lab, you a proper lab monkey. I love being in the lab. I I'm, I'm bored a bit. I don't want to be in the lab. I right? like being in the lab. I, I want just... to be sitting in my desk drinking a cup of tea and like just cruising through the BBC website. Right. It's just wasting time. Wasting taxpayers' money. That's what students do all the work. Exactly, and you get all the credit. Well, yeah, often. Pretty much. They, they write the papers. Yeah, yeah. They like, do all the work. Yeah, no, they make the figures. We're joking, of course. But yeah, yeah, sitting at the desk at Dream Team. But anyway, I went to the lab with him. He's a super enthusiastic guy. And um, we made some bubbles. And like, I thought it would be, you know, quite a technically challenging, interesting thing to make bubbles. Do you think it is, Steve? You just shake. Some, <laughs> you just shut the That's you do it. You get some... I like it. I'm, I'm making it a little, dumbing it down a bit, right? But basically, yeah. you get something, some soap, yeah, or something. You like get a shake. You put it in a bit of water. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in a bit of water, pushing back the boundaries. And you, you, you do shake it, but you do shake it in a little bit of a more scientific way. You have a machine called a sonicator, mm. which is actually delivers high frequency vibrations, and it basically bubbles it up into a froth. Yeah. Bingo. Job done. Bubbles made. It's very cool. And then you, you have to use a centrifuge to get the little ones and the big ones separated. Right. But yeah, he was... So I was just do it by mass and the centrifuge. So is that how you separate them? Yes, yeah, so they go to the top, obviously. Yeah. Well, well actually, Yeah, some of them go to the top, some of them go to the bottom. But um, yeah, it was it was quite fun being back in the lab. And I'd forgotten that how... Because I, I, when I was in the lab, I was quite careful and like, you know, trying to do everything properly. He was just like totally freestyling. Just, he he just was just bucket science. He, he was, you know, Dish we didn't have gosh. any. We didn't have any. We didn't have anything to hand. It was always like, what? What, what do we? Had to go and like get bits of plastic to prop things up randomly. Right. And found lying in the it's lab. very unscientific. I think most people, if they listen, they're not scientists themselves. They imagine scientists being very methodical, very fastidious, sliding everything up, organised. And you're saying that's the exact opposite. It's of, not like that at all. No. Yeah. I mean, you just he's, he was improvised. I mean, you do improvise to a certain extent, but he was just doing it randomly. On sp- but another thing he was doing was he had these syringes, and he wanted to. Sp- he wanted to do something with the syringe. I won't go into the details anyway. But to do that, he had to try and cut the syringe in half. Right? So it's a, a plastic syringe. It's a plastic syringe. Like you'd, you know, like you'd like, take, you'd have it's, it's not like well, a tiny little one. You'd have a vaccination. It's yeah. quite a big, chunky syringe. 
So he had to try and cut the syringe in half, including the plunger, right? But yeah. like, he didn't have any. We didn't have any proper scissors knocking around. So we went through like three or four pairs of scissors, just kind of like blindly crushing his yeah. syringe. Like eventually, it kind of just snapped into like loads of fragments. Right, but. Did, did it work in the end? Yeah, but it was just through by random luck that one of them just didn't shatter in the wrong place. So if you, so if you cut enough syringes in half, eventually you find one that works. Yeah, that pretty much. Good. But anyway, uh, I mean, there's so it was a fun, yeah. fun being in the lab. Okay. It's fun being in the lab. And the, th- the thing that's nice about being in the lab is as well, like all the students are in there and you can have a bit of banter mm. with people in the lab. And when you're sitting in the office having a cup of tea, looking at the BBC website, pop bitch, that sort of thing. <laughs> you can't have as much banter because generally people in the office they're doing worky type things right. they're not yeah. just hanging around but waiting for something you to can actually chat to them more as a little chin wag yeah that's good yeah. I like that yeah it was good yeah I mean I think uh, there's an important point there I think what's interesting like what makes a good experimentist I think is that ability to improvise and chop things in half and take things apart and use them in a different way because actually that's how the majority of science I think you know, gets done is these people not just necess- just getting on with it and, and improvising well, yeah, and you know my, I mean, my, um, my, my girlfriend, I say my girlfriend, maybe I should call her a partner, but when I say partner, people get a bit confused. Over I thought you were gay. But that's pretty much the story. Yeah, okay. So I'm never, never sure, but we, you know, we've been together like 10 years. Anyway, why am I talking about my, anyway, um, she's a, she's an artist. That's, yeah. Right? So she's an artist. So she, she thinks that like I'm a boring man with no creative ability. Right. What so do you say to people like that, Steve? Well, you should invite her into the laboratory and show her how creative you are. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Would you... <laughs> so... <laughs> well, I don't have to invite her into the laboratory to do that, Steve. No. Well, I just... <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah, so... Do you think scientists are creative, Steve? Do they creative? Back to serious mode. I think there, I think there are elements of science that are hugely creative. I mean, at some level, we're solving problems, and although you're not necessarily creating a song or painting a picture, what you are doing is thinking of kind of creative and innovative ways to solve problems. So, yeah, I mean, for instance, in our lab, uh, we're constantly thinking of new instrumentations. How can we use new technology? How, for instance, we're um, we have a three D printer in the lab, which predominantly we use to print out little hedgehogs. But we've actually used scientifically for many things. We also what, the, what hedgehogs? Just like little totems, because when you when you kind of calibrate it, or you kind of just print out some of the things you can download. Uh, why a hedgehog? Oh, why not a hedgehog? Why, why not? I don't know. Why not? I don't know. Yoda. You could do Yoda too. That would be fine. I tell you what. Next time I'll print you out a Yoda. How about that? Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we have a. You know, we're playing around with things like virtual reality. We've got a, a, a DK2. Think what sorts of virtual reality you do? What do you mean? Well, I don't know. Virtual reality is quite yeah. advanced these days. Yeah, indeed. Quite so we've got the developer, developer kit too. Can you touch and feel things with virtual Can't reality? Can't touch at the moment. I'm oh, still really? Oh, oh, when you can, let me know. What I'm trying to do is attach it to my microscope. So we have lots of four-dimensional data, and, and four-dimensional data is very difficult to, to, to convey through a scientific publication on a, on a, on a, on a um, figure. So four-dimensional data just sure. means stuff that happens in time. Yeah. But we, it's not always time, it could be something else. What's five-dimensional data? Well, it would be another orthogonal dimension that changes, that doesn't affect the others. What, like what? Um, you could do... Is that, that like in, like, time travel? 
Uh, no. Because I see this four-dimensional and five-dimensional stuff yeah. sometimes in papers, and I just think, why are they calling it that? That just means that... No, it just means... It's like a man, a man, a video of a man walking through a room is four-dimensional data. Indeed. Yeah. But then, yeah, well, I don't get your point. So all, all, all dimensional... I just think it's like a bit of a buzzword. People use five-dimensional, four-dimensional to make it sound more complex than that. That's all science is, really, isn't it? No, he tries to make things more simple. I, th- I think. I mean, there's a good quote by Paul Dirac about that, and I can't remember the quote, so I'm going to paraphrase it. But he said, like, poetry is, makes simple things more complicated, whereas science makes complicated things more simple. Yeah, I know, I know of the quote. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm the... I mean, I get you, just, you, just, you just read out a whole uh, a paragraph from that uh, research article, and it didn't sound simple to me. So philosophically, I agree with you. Uh, in, in, in actuality, I don't think it ends up being that way. So you're talking about the research paper about Thunderstruck that we talked about earlier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so there you're reading out quite verbose and um, uh, extensive language when it doesn't really need to be. Right? What they did was dissolve something and something else. Oh, well, yeah, I suppose so. But you, I mean, the point of that is you'd, it's like a recipe book. So you wouldn't want an, ambi- you wouldn't want an ambiguous recipe book, you'd do. You'd want, you'd want to know exactly what you're doing. I'm a terrible cook. But I can follow a recipe, right? So because I don't have no intuition when it comes to cooking at all, yeah, it's rubbish. But if I get a good cookbook, I'm an amazing cook, right? I've got this manager so cookbook. So you're saying if people were more, if uh, if chefs were more scientific, then then you would be awesome. Then everyone would be awesome. Is what you're saying? I think that if you could like physically exactly do perform a number of tasks. To, to make, I don't know, duck a l'orange or something. I'll go back to the 1980s. I love it. That's just Do the fact that they had to But anyway, yeah, if you could, if you had, if you, I mean, in theory, that's what you do. And that's the whole point of a scientific publication, isn't it? Sure. I mean, you have to reproduce what someone else has done mm-hmm. to, to make something happen. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, uh, science is no different from cooking. There science is no different. Have you um, uh, read Harold McGee's book on food and cooking? It's really very interesting. It's, is he like... Um, because Heston Blumenthal's famous for sciencey cooking, isn't he? He is, yeah. But is Heston, he Heston has no background in science. Oh, this dude does, does he? He's a physicist. And he was frustrated with exactly what you're suggesting, Nick, is that people use all these words in cooking that, that don't necessarily... So, for instance, the word acidulated is what? used. Acidulated. So what does that mean? It means acid. <laughs> it means acid. See, this is, I, get, I mean, I get irritated with very minor things. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll get on to that. <laughs> But, so he wrote a, book, a whole book actually kind of detailing there's, there's no there's no um, uh, there's no recipes in it all it is is just about, about food so for instance there's a whole uh, chapter on eggs and it starts with the evolution of the chicken it says how the chicken came about that's the kind of level of detail that he goes into you don't um, bloody need to know about the evolution of the chicken to boil but, an egg but no one's ever done this before you need to know about protein aggregation right you need to know about denaturation Protein. You do not, Steve. To boil an egg, you just need to know how long you put the egg in some boiling water. No, but you want to. You want to. No one had ever bothered to actually try and understand how to make the perfect poached egg. No one had ever bothered to understand what you know. When people say about kneading dough to kind of release the gluten. Oh yeah, yeah it's like yeah. all these things which people kind of talk about, right? and and it's kind of food quackery. Food quackery, exactly. And so he kind of debunked a lot of food quackery. It's an excellent book, I reckon. Oh, okay. What's it called again? It's called On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. Have you got a copy? I have. I'll borrow it next time. You will do. I'm excited about that. It'll be good, won't it? In fact, Heston's quoted on the back saying this is the only uh, only, uh, cookbook you ever need. 
So he said. Well, bully for Heston. Bully for Heston. <laughs> <laughs> So Nick, Harry Croto died. That's sad. It's really sad. So for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Harry Croto was um, uh, the Nobel Laureate uh, in 1996, I believe, for the discovery of C60, which is a unique form of carbon. He's also a big science communicator, and I was lucky enough to be taught by him uh, and interact with him uh, when I was an undergraduate. That's cool. So is that buckyballs? Yeah. So what I thought we'd do is we'd... He, you know, he was a really great science communicator, so I thought I would kind of tell the story a little bit about what buckyballs are and, and how he discovered them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's do it. Okay. So, so Harry was, um, uh, he was a radio, uh, an, astro, an astrophysical chemist. So he was kind of looking at, uh, using radio telescopes to look at vibrational bands to try and detect molecules in space. So when people think, you know when we, you know when Brian Cox, and I actually love Brian Cox, Nick. Uh, uh, when, I'm, warming, I'm warming to Brian Cox. Ah, uh, interesting. I haven't um, seen him as much recently, I think that's the reason. Right, so uh, so when people talk about, you know, we say that there, the, there's uh, atmosphere of carbon dioxide, or there's, there's rain, rain made of methane, or all these kind of things, the way we learn about that is by uh, looking at the light that comes from those plants, the reflected light that comes from those plants, or through the interstellar medium, or places like that. Um, and these are called, these are initially discovered by uh, Fraunhofer, right? So these are the, 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 the bits of the spectrum that are missing. And they're missing because certain uh, atoms and molecules are absorbing that light. I believe that's how they discovered helium and also why it was called a helium because of its absorbs, absorption bands coming from the sun. Exactly right, helios. Wow, interesting when I hear You really are, I feel like. You really are. Wow, and also your voice gets a little bit nerdier when you say that. <laughs> well, I do. I kind of put on the voice, well, and it's so quite interesting because it was, uh, I believe, um, the, one of the first elements to be discovered when it hadn't actually been isolated. Just that's, evidence of it. That's good, isn't it? Mm. I like that. Anyway, so so, so the, yeah, what you do is you take the light from from something in space and you disperse it through a prism. And then you look at that on some kind of detector and you see kind of black lines in it. Why are you um, telling me all this? Well, because I'm going to tell you why, how Harry discovered C60. Okay. Yeah. I'm just explaining how spectroscopy oh, works. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, that branch of uh, science is called spectroscopy. And um, uh, Harry Croto was working, uh, he was interested in uh, long chain alkyne molecules, which are basically car- chains of carbon. And he wanted to see if they formed in space. So what they do is just in the same way you take the light from the sun and disperse it, he was looking at a different region of the spectrum, in the, in the radio wave and the microwave region of the spectrum, and points the telescope at various planets and things. Um, and what he was doing is making these compounds in his laboratory and then to, to discover exactly where these absorption lines are, these little black lines are, and then looking for those lines in space. And then the idea would be that if you see them, that's because that molecule is actually there in that interstellar cloud or in that uh, planet or, or not planet in that time but you know uh, in in that from that star so what did he find then so he was looking for those things and uh, they were the way they do these the way they make these molecules is they um, uh, they take two bits of carbon essentially two graphite rods and they put a huge current across them and they just kind of wheel them into each other and they all just like vaporize basically um, and in doing so uh, uh, they make a lot of soot but they also can isolate some compounds from that. 
Um, and one of them, uh, there was, happened to be um, a very, what they were doing is looking at the peaks for these small chain carbon chains. And they were looking at, you know, uh, the one uh, molecule that contained two carbon chains and then three carbon chains and then four. And they got all the way up to 60. And there was this huge peak in the spectrum. And they were like, well, what's the, this is weird. You know, and actually there's this, you know, famous recording in his book uh, where it's like circles C60, what's this? And then there was another peak at C70. So there was this really interesting thing where they wondered what, what was this? What was this structure? And what's really interesting, so, so carbon's are obviously a very important molecule. Um, and it has three, what we now know as three, uh, what are called allotropes or, or enantiomorphs, old chemists call them, but they're three basic forms of carbon. So this would be like diamond, graphite. So diamond and graphite are the two one that most people know. And so, so, so there's no difference chemically between carbon and, uh, and, um, uh, and, and sort of graphite and diamond. It's just the way that the atoms are arranged. Yeah. Isn't that quite, I mean, it's quite amazing in and of itself. I mean, think how different those two, those two. Are there any other, like, things like that then? Mm, absolutely, yeah. So like tin, tin famously has two uh, enantiomorphs, one of which is toxic. Oh, really? Which is uh, uh, allegedly why, um, Napoleon didn't do too well in winning on the Russians. Oh, really? So, yeah, poisoned. He yeah. was poisoned, who his by, troops were poisoned. By the enantiomorph of... I thought they just all starved. But they did, because all of their food went bad. Oh, right, I see what you mean. Yeah. Oh. Um, anyway, so there was lots of different versions of it. But, but what Harry did is in these experiments where he had no interest in caring about graphite and carbon, is he found that there's, the, there's a third form of carbon, which is a very unique thing, you know, very unusual. I mean, carbon and graphite have been known for thousands of years, and to kind of just happen upon a completely new form. So that's the big golf ball one. Then. Yeah, so it looks like a football. Yeah, so so it's called, but it's named after the geodesic domes made by um, Buckminster Fuller. And Harry was a huge. It's a shame he has such a long name, isn't it? Buckminster. So initially it was called Buckminster Fullerene. He's yeah, called like Gav. Dave. You could call it. Yeah, yeah. he's called it the new form of carbon. Gavin. Gav. Gavin would have been good because it sounds a bit like. Um, Graphene. Yeah, it would. Yeah, I was just thought God could distract them because I've seen it. Yeah, um, oh, it's graphene, isn't it? But graphene is just one layer of graphite, isn't it? That's right, but it's the same structure as as as, as graphene as graphite is. Um, yeah, so so he found and the way he found it. This is what's quite cool. So they were trying to isolate it, right? So they're trying to put them in various instruments, things like a an NMR spectrometer um, or or a mass spectrometer. Um, they were trying to kind of isolate it, and one of the things about Graphite, uh, sorry, graphite is it doesn't dissolve in any solvent, right? So, you, so if you get a bit of pencil lead on your carpet, there's nothing you can do. You can only brush it off. You can't dissolve it in the same way. Oh, really? No, it just doesn't dissolve in anything. But it brushes off pretty well. It brushes off pretty well. But get the vacuum cleaner on it. You can do that. It's like coal, isn't it? You can just put the vacuum cleaner. But you can't dissolve it, right? That's right. the point. But C60, you can. So if you take top, this is how they purified it. So they the. The PhD student in this group, a guy called Jonathan Hare, um, who you might remember did a BBC series called uh, Rough Science, where they were kind of marooned on an island and they had to kind of get, it's kind of in the early 2000s. Never heard of that. Okay. Anyway, uh, Kate Humble was in it. Uh, oh. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so this actually dissolves in toluene, which is an organic solvent, so it actually makes this beautiful purple kind of colour. So basically you just, you just make some soot and you pour some toluene on it. And you purify out carbon C60. Oh, so soot has carbon, it has buckyballs in it. Got loads of it in it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Does it, is it any, is it of any use to anybody? So it spawned an entire area of research. So things like nanotubes, if anyone's heard of that, and actually maybe, and people would argue nanotechnology, 
This was all in the mid eighties or eighty five. This originally discovered this discovery. But I mean, like nano carbon nanotubes are not, but it's fullerene. No, they're, they're exactly the same. Just, are they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you imagine taking a football and popping it in half and just dragging it out and then putting a thin is sheet. That's what a carbon nanotube. That's all a carbon nanotube. Is. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the end, the caps are the important. The caps, and then the, it's kind of like bent. Bent graphite. Yeah, so all of the discoveries of carbon nanotubes came from the original discoveries. Oh, right. Well, there you go. I had no idea. Yeah. And so, 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 yeah, Harry, uh, in, um, uh, with two others, was he was awarded the Nobel Prize in, in 1996. It was really sad. He's really. I, I look back, I went and got my old. He taught me, there's another graphic, he taught me molecular symmetry, which any, if there's any chemist out there, everyone learns um, molecular symmetry. It's uh, quite. Um, Choose a bit of I don't know. I've heard about it because you, when you, you know, as a biologist, you get different enantiomers of. I might be talking about something totally different. You get different um, enantiomers of molecules like glucose. You do, and D-glucose is the one that is made, like in plants and animals. And I assume they're not symmetric. They, well, they are. So you're talking about you're talking about chirality there. The so that's nothing to do with molecular. It's related, but not not a million, not quite the same thing. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, so Harry taught me this, and I, uh, I went and looked at my old notes from an undergraduate. So I know exactly. So it was the third of May, two thousand and three, was the first time I met Harry. And it's like, as an undergrad, he's quite intimidating. He's got this kind of crazy hair. Always wore the same shirt. It was either orange or green, but it was always the same. Yeah. I knew the guy for fifteen years. He never wore anything else. Um, and he came in and uh, and was just brilliant. It was just a fantastic opportunity. Everyone loved him. I wrote at the end of my first lecture. I wrote, "We love you, Harry." And this is from two thousand and three. Um, and it's just it's, it's a real shame that he uh, he he worked at Sussex his whole life, which is where I did the University of Sussex, where I did my uh, undergraduate degree. And then he moved um, in two thousand four, I think, to um, uh, Florida uh, before moving back. And yeah, it's a shame he. Um, a real, real loss to science, a real big communicator, and it's, uh, it's a shame to see him go. What's annoying Nick? Steve, do you know what's been really annoying me this week? I don't know. Nick, what has been really annoying me this week? Tim Peak. Tim Peak, the astronaut. He's annoying me. Why is he annoying you? Because what's he doing in space apart from doing rubbish public engagement exercises? Dicking around as far as I can tell. That's what he's doing. Like he, so from what I can work out over the past couple of weeks, what he's done is he's, he's, he's driven a remote control car from space. Right. right? And he's Tell also... pictures. Took, took, takes bloody pictures tweet, every day. pictures off. He takes a picture. I was looking at one of the Isle of Wight just today because he grew up somewhere near there anyway. I like the pictures, though. I've got nothing against the pictures. Okay. Pictures are not what's bothering me. It's things like he's driving the remote control car and then he's running a marathon. What, what do you mean? He's running a marathon? He, ran the, he ran the London Marathon. On, on, the on a treadmill. That does, does seem a waste of time. He did it quite fast, fast actually. Did, did it? What was his three, three and a half hours. It's pretty good. But then again, he is weightless. <laughs> <laughs> That is true, yeah. It helps. Yeah, yeah. He was, tied, he was tied down to it. But the thing about Tim Peake is, and maybe I'm kind of like obliterating my own point of criticism by the fact I'm talking about it now, but he always, he, we, I don't actually know what he's doing. What's the point? For me, all he seems to be doing is doing like a massive kids bloody he's been public la- engagement I thing. I he's been launching um, satellites into space. 
That's one of the things he's been doing. What with his bare hands? Yeah, they basically just pop pop it out, pop it out the the port. Well, they just doing. pop pop out. Just yeah, <laughs> they just open the door and just <laughs> yeah, out you go. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's actually think about it, right? So it's all <clears> some mechanics. So that if something's heavier, it'll just occupy a different orbit. So they don't crack. Doesn't like crash into the uh, into the space station. It just goes. It occupies a lower orbit because it because of its mass and its interaction with gravity. Oh, so you just drop, you just pop it out, Nick. But no, I don't know. That's not true because free fall doesn't. You think about it. Yeah. The rate at which something falls doesn't depend on how heavy something is. But no, but it's not. It's not because of um, uh, the uh, resistance to to air resistance. It's just because of the the pull of gravity. Oh. You know, G M one M two. I don't know. Well, you're you're more of an expert on that than me. But I thought that something of the same, you know, it doesn't matter about the mass; it would just occupy the same orbit. But anyway, so he's popping out satellites. Just popping them out. Yeah, but what? What I don't. I don't. How many has he got up there? <laughs> so like, it feels a little. How long can he spend it? Are they like, 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 like the size like, of an apple? Like, I know you can have really small satellites. I don't know how big they are, but he is weightless, as you said. So you can just like, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? They can just pop them out there. It's not that interesting, though. I don't know anything about... Well, this, this is this is my point of criticism. He's doing all of these kind of public engagement things. That's fine. He runs a marathon. Yeah. You know, he teaches... He, te- he taught a class from space. That's pretty, pretty yeah. cool. But what's he actually doing? So, Tim Dick's background isn't... Um, so, it's quite interesting. So uh, He's an army man, yeah? Exactly. So, when the, the ESA, uh, the European Space Agency, uh, opened up applications for... Um, uh, astronauts back in 2008, I think. Um, and they, the first time they've done it since the early 90s. I know because I applied. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. And yeah, right. Um, and there were two. You're uh, too fat to be an astronaut. Too fat to be an astronaut. Although um, you have lost some weight recently. Thanks, Dick. Um, yeah, they, there was two. <laughs> there was two. Um, and are you too old now as well? No, I don't think you are, because right? no, no, he's no. quite old. No, no. Are you but, going to apply again then? No. Well, you can't. It's not it's every year. They only oh. once every like 15 years. So, anyway, you were saying? Yeah, so there's two ways of uh, entering. One is uh, via uh, the, the military route, so you, you know, you're good at flying aeroplanes, and, uh, and the other one's via the scientific route, because you have to go up and do science in space. And, uh, and obviously, Tim applied via, the, via the, uh, the military route. So, actually, once he's up there, much for him to do, really. Just have a little potter. You quite so like it. Why is he up there then? You know, just because we want to. We want to. So they're studying. There's lots of various studies that are happening on the International Space Station. So things about. Like, so basically, you don't know either what he's doing. No, no, no. So they are doing long-term studies for things like when they for a manned mission to Mars and things. They want to do. They want to see like how the uh, the human body uh, does in space. Yeah, you yeah. Know. But they've been doing that for years. Yeah, sure. But, but the. But we need to garner more information, don't we? Yeah. Because we're going, it will take a few years to, to pop out tonight. It's a long, long way. It's a long way, yeah. But I mean, that, you just like, you hear him on the news all the, all the time, and I'm just like, what's he doing? He's, he's, he's driving a remote control car. Did he really have to go to space to do that? Yeah, did he have to ride an did explosion? He, did he have to go to space? Couldn't he? Because they did it, they had the remote control car in some boring place, I don't know, Luton or something like that. And they had it driving around a hangar. Right. And it was kind of like he was controlling it from space. Why couldn't he have just gone to, to I don't know, yeah, he could have gone to, I don't know, Birmingham. Right. That'd be and impressive. just controlled it from Birmingham. Or Washington. Yeah, and if they're bothered about the weightless thing, they could have just made it awkward for him. 
like tickled him or <laughs> made him like do something else at the same time. Yeah. Do you know what? Like talk to his children or something. Or, yeah. You know, get hassled by his kids, something like that. And that would have had the same effect. It would have been a lot cheaper if Tim Peake just got hassled by his children while he tried to drive a remote control. Yeah, and I reckon that would be a good that'd be a good simulation of him like having a stressful situation whilst trying to drive like a Mars rover. And all of that spare cash we could spend in our laboratories, couldn't we? All that, we could. billions of that we spent. Yeah, there you go. Tim Peake, that's my words. And that's it. That was the third episode of the Science Shed. Um, it's Steve here. Um, if you enjoyed it and you'd like to hear more rambles from me and Nick, uh, please like, favourite, subscribe uh, on social networking, all that jazz. The next episode of the Science Shed, episode four, will be out uh, in two weeks' time on a Sunday. So, so please look out for that. Um, also, if you go to my Twitter feed, uh, which is at Steve the Chemist, uh, you can see a picture I uploaded of um, the C60 molecule I was talking about in today's podcast. So that kind of beautiful purple color I was talking about. Um, there's a nice image of that, of, of uh, Buckminster Fullerene dissolved in toluene, um, which hopefully you'll enjoy. Um, that's it. And uh, we'll hopefully see you next time. Bye. <laughs>